0: chapter 27. We're studying the book of Acts together on Sunday mornings, and we come to chapter 27. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the guys that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Now, put one in your hand, and and you'll be fairly lost this morning, I think, with what we're going to try and cover without a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, this morning. For our Scripture reading this morning, it's just a single verse, and it is verse 20 of chapter 27. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, your commitment to our lives. We thank you for your love for us. We pray for those that are uh, with us this morning and maybe never been in a church before and they've never, ever heard that you love them personally, that you are their creator, and that you also want to be their heavenly father, to be their God. And we thank you, Lord, for... Uh, your love for us, your commitment to us, your faithfulness to us this morning. And as we turn to your Word this morning, we don't want to explore it within the confines of our own intellect, our own abilities, or uh, the merely the physical realm. We want to enjoy fellowship with you as we study it. It means everything for us to have you give revelation to your Word from your throne in heaven and by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would do that in our lives this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In chapter 27, the Apostle Paul... Uh, even though he is completely uh, innocent of any wrongdoing at the hands of the Roman Empire, and not only innocent of of any crime, but no charge, formal charge has been uh, brought against him, Uh, he does begin now formally his journey in chapter 27 to Rome to stand trial before Caesar just as he had appealed uh, uh, to and just as was his right as a Roman citizen. The overarching theme, I think, of these final chapters in the book of Acts, and certainly including chapter 27 and and 28, is the providence of God at work in our lives as Christians. Uh, Even during those times when it looks as if God is completely absent at the moment in uh, the nitty-gritty and the daily and the personal Uh, side related to our lives. The Lord had promised to Paul that just as Paul had borne witness to Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, so too he would do the same thing in Rome and and stand before uh, Caesar. But of course, this is the case with all of God's promises. They come uh, to pass, uh, but what is uh, also often true of God's promises is that they don't come to pass in quite the way that we would expect them to. Or even want them to, that they're going to occur, that they're going to be fulfilled. God is going to be faithful to them. That's never uh, in doubt. If it's in doubt in our minds, it's not in doubt at all in the mind of God. But the path between here and the fulfillment of that promise, that's where it can get a little bit scary. And that path is called life. And most of us don't, we don't live our lives at the beginning point and then at the destination. We live our lives, all of us, on the journey. And so here this promise is made to Paul. It's not going to happen exactly the way he would have thought uh, that it would be that here I'm going to go to Rome and I'm going to take a a, a direct situation straight to Rome. He will get to Rome and he will testify of the Lord there, but the journey is going to include, uh, as it already has with him imprisonment, uh, corrupt Roman officials, uh, attempts to assassinate him, uh, a storm and a shipwreck, also being bitten as a viper, and so forth. And it's recorded related to Paul's life because Paul's life, in a sense, is exactly as ours, each of us as Christians. God is going to take us from our Jerusalem to our Rome, whatever that means for your life and his plan for your life but it might be on a path that we wouldn't uh, uh, choose. Because this passage of Scripture, I want to look at the first 26 verses of it this morning. Because it's such a long narrative, um, I'd like to just spend the first portion of our time uh, looking, doing a brief survey of those 26 verses and then close with an application. I do want to warn you, uh, they, they do say related to Luke's description of this shipwreck and the storm and so forth and in Acts chapter 27 that it is uh, uh, in relationship to ancient documents related to seafaring in the ancient world, uh, this document called Acts chapter 27 is is the finest and the clearest and the most revelatory of any single document concerning uh, uh, sea tra- uh, traffic and trade and so forth in the ancient world. And And, uh, and they get into a storm, and it's kind of messy, so... Um, take your Dramamine now. Uh, You may uh, rather than later. Additionally, if you have always dreamed of taking a Mediterranean cruise, you may lose that dream today in the course of our study. I just want to warn you ahead of time uh, and to be fair and balanced about the whole thing. So, When we, uh, as we begin here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 27, a bit of an overview of the passage. And when it was decided that we, and that pronoun is important to notice, should uh, sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And so, Paul is in the city of Caesarea, He is now delivered uh, to this Roman centurion. All Roman centurions, as as they're recorded in the Bible, they're all spoken of favorably. And Julius doesn't let us down or let his uh, rank or his office down at all. He is a very noble man, as we'll see in the passage, and very, very kind to Paul. Paul very fair man. But Paul is entrusted to his uh, custody. You notice that as Paul is entrusted to his custody, that Paul isn't the only one that he is transporting, that Julius is transporting to Rome. Uh, They delivered, as we see in verse 1, not only Paul but some other prisoners. Paul is probably the only one of the prisoners who is uh, going uh, with kind of an appellate Uh, circumstances related to his trip to Rome. The rest of them have been Committed, have committed crimes. They've been arrested for those crimes. They've been convicted of those crimes, and probably capital crimes. Uh, and now being transported to Rome for the purpose. Uh, I mean, if you if you committed a crime, a capital crime in Caesarea or in Judea or anywhere in the provinces of the Roman Empire, those local jurisdictions had all of the power and authority necessary to put you death on the spot. So why transport these prisoners all the way from Caesarea? Syria or anywhere else in the Roman Empire to Rome? Ah, it's a good question. It's a good question for the Colosseum, for the games in the Colosseum. So that these men, why put them to death when we can get a little entertainment value out of them uh, for the, Ro- uh, the crowds in Rome and put them out to face their death before the gladiators or before the wild animals. And so, Paul is with a large group of these men, all of them uh, on their way to their death. You can be sure that he witnessed to every single one of them in the course of this journey and and these uh, events. You also notice that uh, pronoun we is uh, used there in verse uh, verse 1, and it will be repeated throughout the entire passage. And what that tells us is that not only does Paul get on this ship to make his way to Rome, but Luke, the author of the book of Acts and the gospel according to Luke, and a physician, and perhaps Paul's personal physician at this point in his life, he travels uh, with Paul on this journey, as well as we'll see in a moment, a, a, a Christian fellow servant by the name of Aristarchus. And, and so, uh, this is the ship uh, this is the beginning of their journey. And so, entering a ship uh, of, of um, Adoramidium, uh, we put to sea, uh, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian, of Thessalonica was with us. They get in a boat, which is a a ship of, and I'm crazy enough to attempt to pronounce it a second time, uh, Adramidium. And what a, a ship related to Adramidium was, was a coastal ship. Um, it's, it's kind of like when you have an airport in our country, and you're going to travel. Uh, you just need a small plane to go from a small airport to a small airport to a small airport uh, that would be kind of like a hopper. And that's what these were in the ancient world in terms of ships. They never really went out far into the sea. They were just small ships that would carry small car, bits of cargo along the various cities that, were, that lined the coastline, a small kind of uh, cargo ship uh, like that, and it would just bounce along the various cities on a route like a delivery route would be um, of any nation that would line the Mediterranean Sea or the cities that might be on an island. The reason that Julius uh, grabs, you know, hitchhikes and grabs a place on this particular ship is he's ultimately trying to get to a city that's big enough where he can find a ship that will go all the way uh, to Rome. From Caesarea, he can't do that. Caesarea is a relatively small town and insignificant in terms of trade. So, to find a ship that would take you right from Caesarea to Rome was impossible. In the same way, if Uh, If you uh, go to an airport in a smaller town and you want to travel to a major metropolitan area in the United States or uh, internationally, almost always you will need to find a connecting flight. Uh, Take the small ship to the larger city and then to get the nonstop to the city that you want to go to. And so, Julius takes this ship with no intention of traveling all the way to Rome on it, but getting to a city that he can then find a ship that is going to Rome and then put his, uh, his prisoners on, uh, on, that, uh, on that, that particular uh, ship. And so, uh, the same day as uh, is, is they leave Caesarea, uh, they make their way uh, to a city named Sidon, and the next day, which is in Lebanon, modern day Lebanon, and the map is up on, on the screens for you to follow along uh, more easily. And the next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go uh, to his friends and receive care. So, a journey of about 69 miles, Caesarea to Sidon, would have been made in about a, a day and a night. They get there. Paul is released, probably with a Roman guard, but he is released in to find Christians within the city and fellowship with them while they're kind of got downtime there inside, and, and probably uh, freight is being loaded and, and offloaded from, from the ship. And in those days, you know, they weren't really careful about their prisoners. They didn't make sure they wanted, you know, got their three squares and they had proper uh, clothing for a journey like this. And so, probably the Christians at Sidon provided Paul and Luke and Aristarchus with some food that they might need above what uh, Julius might feed them on behalf of the Roman Empire, probably some clothing and, and so forth. Then they make their way from Sidon to a city by the name of Myra. And so when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And, uh, and, and so, as you see on the map, they traveled to the north of the island of Cyprus. Normally, they would have traveled below it, but they're, at this time of the year, getting some winds, and they're having difficulty making their way, finding a proper wind to go in that direction. So, they're kind of hovering along the shore where they can manage their progress with sails uh, effectively. And so, they make their way uh, to the north of Cyprus. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia, and there the centurion, Julius, found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. So, they come to Myra, and now they finally find a city that's big enough and a port that's big enough that they can find a ship that's going to take them uh, directly uh, to Rome and it 's described here as an Alexandrian ship making its way to Rome and and and, the, and he puts his prisoners on there ultimately there 's going to be two hundred and seventy six people on board this ship, as we'll see not this week, but another week. An Alexandrian ship was a specific ship. Alexandria, of course, is a city in northern Egypt. And so, what is it doing on a route between Egypt and Rome? It's bringing grain. Egypt was one of the bread baskets for the Roman Empire. You imagine Rome at the time, a city of at least a million people, uh, getting enough grain, enough food to keep those people sustained and happy and fed and so forth was a major undertaking. So, they depended on their provinces to provide grain for the hub of the Roman Empire. And Egypt, of course, with the Nile River and so forth, uh, a very, very uh, agriculturally rich area. So, there was constant flow of ships from Alexandria uh, to Rome to deliver the grain that they would be transporting. They would typically, uh, if you see a map someday, if you care about it, They would typically take a uh, a journey from uh, Alexandria, go straight north up into uh, uh, Myra, which is in modern-day Turkey, and then go straight west into Rome. So, there would be these ships all of the time. Uh, Julius discovers one, and he puts all of his uh, his people on it. They were large ships by uh, uh, ancient standards, and so they could handle the open seas. They didn't have to hover along uh, the coasts, and typically about 180 feet long and 45 feet uh, wide. And uh, so, he gets his, his prisoners and loads them on along with other passengers that are on, on the ship as well. And so, they depart there from Myra, and begin to make their way to a city in a port called Fairhaven. And when we sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off uh, uh, Sindus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off of uh, Salmone. So, they're making the trip, as you can see on the map, towards Sindus. They're, they're going along the route of of Turkey before they head out into the more open sea. They had hoped to turn into Sindus in order to port there for a moment for whatever reason. But the seas are becoming difficult, and the wind is becoming difficult, and they can't manage docking there. And so, they decide what they're going to do is uh, uh, continue on their way and head to Crete in the hopes of of finding, uh, you know, a haven there at the port in in Fairhaven. And so, passing it with difficulty, they go through Crete. Normally, as you look at the map, they would make their way uh, from Myra to Rome by going north of Crete, but they go below south of Crete because the winds are becoming a problem for them, and, and they're having difficulty uh, managing in, in, in the control uh, of of the ship. And so, uh, they're now hoping, let's just find a, a place to-, to dock this thing. Now, a- a- as they uh, come to Fairhaven, uh, they're with-, with much difficulty. They're really struggling now to manage the ship and the control of the ship and the weather at the time. Now, verse 9, when much Time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because uh, the fast was already over. Paul then uh, spoke to them. Now, uh, unfortunately, not only were the winds not helping them advance toward Rome, uh, they weren't catching the kind of winds that they were, that wouldn't normally be a big problem except that they had a bigger problem in their rearview mirror. And their big problem is is the time of year in which they're attempting this trip. And the clock is ticking. What normally would take a short period of time, uh, you know, in, in order to get from uh, Mira to uh, Fairhaven uh, uh, or Sidon to, uh, Myra, rather five hundred miles fifteen days, uh, uh, took longer than they expected now, from Myra to Fairhaven, taken a lot longer, so it 's moving later into the year, which is creating a problem uh, for them. when it mentions the fast there in verse nine it 's talking about the Jewish day of atonement that is now past. We know in that year that the Jewish day of atonement uh, fell on October fifth. And so, that's putting them pretty late in the year for, and all of them knew this was a a difficult kind of time to be out on the Mediterranean Sea. In this part of the Mediterranean, it was always dangerous, everybody knew it, to travel uh, uh, from any time after September 15th. And they're well past that date now, Uh, probably three to four weeks past that date, and That dangerous period would be all the way until November 11th. And from November 11th, no uh, pilot of a ship or captain of a ship in their right mind would take a boat out on the Mediterranean Sea all the way until mid-March. And so, they get now to Fair Havens. They probably feel very fortunate, given what they've run into already, to have found a port somewhere that they can dock in everyone realizes at this point, we're not getting to Rome this year. We're not going to get to Rome this fall. It's not going to be able, it's going to be spring at the earliest before we can resume our journey. The one thing that they're trying to deal with now is we've got our ship at Fairhaven. But do we want to keep it here for the winter, or do we want to move it to a superior port located in the city of Phoenix, which was just right up the coast of Crete and a little bit to the north? The problem with staying in Fairhaven is it was a good port, but it was kind of a shallow port in terms of its protection. It was also a harbor that was open to the storms. So, if you docked there for the winter, you, were, you had some protection against the storms, but not the kind of protection that you would want. You could still lose a ship in that harbor. And so, they began to think to themselves, do we want to stay here or do we want to make an attempt uh, to uh, go the 40 miles to the city, the harbor of Phoenix and harbor there, much larger harbor, uh, much more safely situated in terms of protection from the storm? This is what they're discussing. Paul comes and, and he speaks to them, and apparently he's been invited into this conversation with Julius, also the owner of the ship, also the helmsman of the captain, and, uh, and he said, "'Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our own lives.'" Notice that when Paul speaks this to them, even though virtually all of this is going to come to pass, he is not speaking by virtue of a prophetic gift. He is not saying, Thus saith the Lord. He very much qualifies it by saying, I perceive. This is his opinion. This is his uh, so called kind of non expert, expert opinion. Don't leave this harbor. We, we barely managed to get here. Let's hold on to what we've got. Burden in the hand, we're too in the bush. Well, somebody might look and say, you've got a Jewish rabbi who was a tent maker, and he's talking about continuing a journey or not continuing a journey in a discussion with a Roman centurion, the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, and what in the world and who in the world made Paul uh, such an expert on Sailing. And uh, God did, actually. Uh, Paul actually was not an expert on sailing, uh, but he definitely was an expert on shipwrecks. In fact, he had a PhD in them. Uh, It's important to, and I think useful to remember that Paul had already written his first and second letters to the church at Corinth long before this. And in those letters in 2 Corinthians, he declared, Three times I was shipwrecked, and a day and a night I spent out in the deep. Three times the apostle Paul had already been uh, experienced shipwreck on a ship that uh, that he was on. And then in one of those shipwrecks, he spent an entire night probably holding on to wreckage out into the Mediterranean Sea or the uh, Adriatic Sea or the Aegean Sea waiting to be uh, rescued, which didn't occur uh, and until uh, the next day. He knew a lot about shipwrecks, and he wasn't uh, interested in uh, adding a fourth one to his, his resume. Uh, Interestingly, somebody took all of the the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, as they're described for us, in the book of Acts, and how many times he would have crossed the various seas that he did as it's recorded. He made 11 different uh, journeys by ship as a part of his missionary journeys, and it's estimated that he spent well over 3,500 miles at sea in, in the part of his his uh, uh, ministry. Well, we're told here that verse 11... As Paul gives his opinion, it was disregarded, and nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded, and of course he would be, by the helmsman, by the the captain of the, of the ship, and the owner of the ship, by then, by then by the things that Paul had spoken. And because the harbor at, there at Fairhaven was not really suitable to winter and not ideal, the majority advised to set sail from uh, there also if, there's a big if, if by any means, they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete uh, open toward the southwest and northwest and uh, to winter there. And so, that was the decision that was uh, made. And then they began to make their journey from Fairhaven to Phoenix. Again, a journey of just about 40 miles right along the coast. They should have covered it in just a few hours, but I think Many of you, if you're a part of my generation, you remember that sometimes a journey that's supposed to take just a few hours takes a lot longer. You remember the minnow and uh, the three-hour tour, the three-hour tour, and what happened with that. Well, something uh, worse is going to happen here. So, what should have been a very short journey, they begin it with a south uh, wind blew softly. It's very nice. Don't you feel like you're in Hawaii at the moment or Tahiti or something uh, writing a love song? Here she comes as the, a soft wind, you know, blew uh, south wind blew softly or he or whatever. So, they, this wind begins to blow. It's favorable for what they're aiming at here, and they think, oh, good. I'm so glad we didn't listen to Paul related to this. This is going to be good. We're going to make it. This is all going to work out uh, okay. That they've obtained their desire, so they put out to sea, and they sailed close close by uh, Crete. But, it, 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 not, but not long after, a tempestuous wind, headwind, arose called uh, Euraclodon, and this great storm comes out of the north and out of the east, and it just slams them as they attempt to make that uh, turn around the cover of Crete. Uh, so, they name it Euraclidon, the name uh, of the storm. It comes from two words in the ancient world, meaning north and east. It was the equivalent of their northeaster. It was the kind of storm you just simply did not want to be caught in. Uh, we know already, related to the hurricanes and so forth, they name storms that are big and terrible, don't they? And so, this storm had a name, and now they are uh, caught Uh, in it. And so, uh, notice verse 15. So, when the ship was caught, they've lost control now of the ship, it's been caught by the storm, and we could not head into the wind, so we let her drive. So you put yourself on that ship. These are not just words on a page. You can feel the water. You can feel the the ship going up and down. The wind, the salt uh, water, and, and so forth. All of the the fear that is going on. Uh, you know, just the sickening kind of uh, of uh, turmoil of of all of this as the the absolute worst thing that they could have thought could happen to them uh, actually uh, hits them. And immediately, they realize they have no hope of returning to Crete. They have no hope now of managing the ship or directing the ship uh, at all. That has to be a sinking feeling, I'm sure, to know that we no longer control this ship. This is completely at the mercy of this storm, and they just simply uh, let the ship drive. Well, the storm was so significant and so great that the crew of the, the, uh, of the ship, and not just the crew, but all of the passengers as well, they began to work hard on the ship to, to begin to do certain things to keep the ship from breaking up under the weight of uh, the the great weight of the storm. And so running under the shelter of an island called Clada, which was about 25 miles away from where they had started, somehow they come around this island. It gives them just a little bit of a break from the full ferocity of the storm, and they figure this is our time uh, to pull the skiff aboard uh, the ship. A skiff was kind of like a tender boat or like a lifeboat that they would drag behind, a smaller boat that they would drag behind a larger ship like this so that they could uh, travel to the, the shore if they needed to when they couldn't get a bigger ship there, or even as, as a lifeboat, they would drag it behind The ship, the skiff is probably completely uh, full of water at this point, and they're concerned that somehow in the storm it's going to hit the larger ship and sink it or, uh, you know, become some other kind of problem. And so, filled with water, with tremendous effort, they begin to pull it up on uh, the deck. And you notice that Luke uses the word we here, more than the crew. Everybody jumps in, Luke included, and we secured the skiff with difficulty, brought it up on the ship. And then they tied it down. But their problems didn't end with that. And when they had taken it on board, they then proceeded to use cables to undergird the ship. They're absolutely terrified at this point. And again, you've got to put yourself in their shoes. How many of you have ever been, uh, well, I can't say in a storm like this because probably not, but put yourself in their shoes at least in terms of seasickness. Is that like one of the worst things that you can ever experience? And then you've got to manage all of these other things on top. And so... They have these cables that they then put under the ship and across uh, the deck of the ship, uh, simply endeavoring to hold the whole thing together. They are afraid that this ship is going to break apart now uh, in, in the storm. And then, fearing lest they uh, should run aground at the uh, Sirtis Sands, they then struck sail and so were driven. The Sirtis stans, Sands was a, a, an area in North Africa, that is a part of modern-day Libya today. And so, it was very common if you got into this kind of a storm out of the Mediterranean Sea that it would drive you almost instantaneously across the several hundred miles of the Mediterranean Sea and then deposit you in a great shipwreck uh, upon those sands. And this storm is so great, they're they're moving so fast with the storm that they feel we're going that 's where we 're going to end up if we don 't do something. It tells us here that what they did in response is they struck sail and and so we 're driven. probably uh, that's not the greatest translation of what happened there. They probably would have pulled down uh, both their large sail and their small sail by this point already. What What is just as easily from the original language to understand is they simply threw their anchor overboard with their ship so that it would provide a drag for the ship so it wouldn't move so quickly toward North Africa and then be destroyed. They're using anything that can buy them inches or, or buy them uh, even minutes. And then on the third day, as, as it just continues to get uh, worse and worse, uh, verse 18 rather, and because we were exceedingly uh, tempest-tossed. Uh, not only are they tempest-tossed, that's bad enough, but as Paul, he's a, uh, Luke rather, he's a doctor. He's very deliberate in his language. Uh, we were exceedingly uh, tempest-tossed. The next day they lightened the ship. They won't throw the grain off until later. Uh, that'll be kind of the last thing that they do. But everything that is on that ship of a personal nature, whatever cargo you brought on, whatever luggage, whatever was extraneous on that ship, they threw it overboard at this point. Everything they can do to uh, lift the weight off of uh, the demands that it was placing upon the structure of the ship. And then on the third day, he said, we threw the ship's tackle overboard uh, with our own uh, hands. And, And, And so, finally, uh, they throw the ship's tackle over. What is the ship's tackle? Uh, The very equipment required to sail the ship. (laughs) What if you were Paul or one of those other passengers, and these people are throwing over the stuff that allows them to manage the ship and get it someplace after the storm passes, if it ever passes? It means... They are, this this is a scene of absolute desperation, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Now, remember, this is a time in human history that is uh, the, the compass as it would be used on the seas in Europe, that's 1,300 years away. The sextant is 1,700 years away. In those days, they navigated their ships on the basis of the sun and the moon and the stars, and they have multiple days here where they cannot see anything in terms of being guided or knowing where they are. They can't see the skies to know where they are, and no, in the midst of all of it, no small tempest beat on us. And then, and then Luke records the result of all of this all hope, not some hope, not most hope, again, very deliberate in his language, all hope that we would be saved was finally uh, given up. Finally, it's an interesting word that he uses there. Uh, When you're in this kind of a crisis, you have some people who lose their hope uh, early on. Uh, Sometimes it can be just by their own constitution. Uh, They're not terribly brave, or they're not terribly strong, or these kind of environments are difficult for them uh, to be in, and so they would lose hope uh, early on. Other people may be much stronger, much more courageous, but they're also very pragmatic, and they look at it and say, listen, I can try to be brave, but we're dying we are no, this is not going to work. And then you have other people who are the bravest. You have, you have a Roman centurion... And, and, and some group of soldiers with him. You have very seasoned uh, seamen on this, this ship that are navigating and an owner that knows all about these things. And ultimately, as the time goes on, and the storm worsens. Finally, there is that last man who looks at it, who is the, the greatest in terms of courage and hopefulness and looking at things through rose-colored glasses and so forth. And finally, even he looks at it and says, there is no hope in this situation for us until all hope on that ship is just like going to a a candle and putting out the flame on the wick and watching that smoke go up. Hope now to a man and entirely disappears from the heart of every single human being on that ship. We are not going to survive this storm that we're in. And then Paul in verse 21, he stands up after some time and after a long abstinence from food, who would want to eat if you've ever been seasick? And then Paul stood in the midst of them. And he said, "Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss." In no way, it never enters my mind, but I do have to explain it away because it enters into other people's minds, and sometimes commentators go that way. There is no way that Paul is standing up in the crisis of this event with the kind of character and maturity that he has to pull. And I told you so uh, on on the group. He merely reminds them that he knew what he was talking about then, and in order that they might give very serious consideration, more serious consideration to what he's about to tell them now. And he said, now I urge you, verse 22, to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Imagine what that news must have meant to them. Uh, but only the ship. The ship is going to be completely destroyed, but nobody's life will be lost. And here's the reason for this reignited hope in the Apostle Paul. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And, And this angel said to me, do not be afraid Paul you must be brought before Caesar the angel reminds Paul of the promise and indeed God has granted to you all those who sail with you and therefore take heart men for i believe god uh, i believe god that it will be just as it was told me however we must run aground on a certain island uh, we this will all end in shipwreck and it does. We'll stop there this morning and pick all of that up another time. Let me close with an application. I know that very often this passage is taught supremely as kind of an example for, uh, of how Christians uh, need to stand, and we need to lead in the midst of the great Uh, storms of life that we find ourselves uh, in, to be a witness to others and to infuse hope into their hearts and uh, into their situation. And I don't doubt that any of that is true, but I don't think that that quite matches with what we have before us in terms of a lesson from this passage. I think that very often as Christians, we can expect The next point of a sermon like the one I'm doing here to be now some instruction on how to process or how to navigate these kind of storms in life victoriously and how to manage them through some faith of our own or some action on our part. Uh, An example of something like that might be to then notice the four reasons that Paul was able to tell them to take heart in the midst of the storm, that somehow in and of himself he realized that God's presence was with him. And, that, and we need to do the same thing, and that he realized that he belonged to God and that he was on duty for God, whatever the circumstances of life might be, and that he was fully convinced of the faithfulness of God. All of that might make a wonderful sermon, but I don't see that here. What I see presented to us here is a storm in life that is so great that it caused everyone on the ship To lose every single ounce of hope of surviving the greatness of this storm. And Luke's use of we in verse 20 means that that included not only the crew and the centurion and everyone else on the ship, but that it included Luke and Aristarchus and Paul. Circle that word we and circle that word all in that verse. We notice and we ask ourselves, why would the angel of God encourage Paul in verse 24, do not be afraid except that he was? And it appears that in the ferocity of this storm, Paul himself has also lost any hope of surviving it, every bit as much as the next guy on that uh, ship. Now, it's important to remember all of us think that a, a big trial or a, a big, you know, any kind of trial or a storm is a big trial or a big storm by virtue of the fact that it's happening to us. But what these men find themselves in the middle of here, it, it, it is not a regular trial in life or regular storm in life. It's not even a deep trial or storm in life. This is the kind of storm or trial that is altogether something greater still, Because it's important to remember that Paul had been shipwrecked three times previously. He knew storms. He knew tough times. But this was something else entirely. I think it's important to understand as Christians that there are storms that can come into our lives that can be so tempestuous so Eurachlidon-like that they can overwhelm us completely. Everything that we are in and of ourselves, overwhelm us physically, overwhelm us mentally, overwhelm us emotionally, and even overwhelm us spiritually. Storms that leave us in the middle of which we have no hope that we will survive them. So I don't believe that. Believe it. It may be coming. I think of as an example a man as deeply spiritual in the Bible as Job, and he certainly knew something of this. And here came into this life of this man for whom Satan couldn't find anything wrong, and in, in, uh, in so speaking, God couldn't either a great man, a godly man, and yet he hits a storm and he hits a trial, and it's this kind of storm and this kind of trial that while within it, he wished repeatedly that he had never been born. And it isn't hyperbole. He meant that. Repeatedly, he cried out to God and said, God, I wish I had never been born if being born meant being exposed to this kind of pain in my life. It was a storm that came into his life that was so deep that Job longed for death as a means of escape. Again, not literature, not hyperbole. He longed to die in order to escape the trial that he found himself in. And he described it many places, one of it in Job chapter 6, and he said to God, oh, that I might have my request. What would that be? And he tells us that God would grant me the thing that I long for. And what does he long for? To die. But he's a good Jewish boy. He can't commit suicide. No one should. And he realizes, I want to desperately get out of this circumstance that I find myself in, but I am unable before God to take this into my own hands and end my own life. And so, he said he pleaded with God that God would do the one thing that he couldn't do for himself and take his life. He put it this way, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand, and that he would cut me off. I think about David in the Old Testament, long years after God had promised that he would be the next king of Israel. He possesses the promise of God, You are going to be the next king of Israel." And yet before becoming the next king of Israel, and while flying, uh, fleeing in this uh, interim period from the hand of King Saul, the current sing, king, where King Saul is attempting on a daily basis to capture David and to kill him, and he's been doing so for months and for years, finally David comes to a place where he gave up hope of surviving the storm and seeing the fulfillment of the promise, and he declares declared to God in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we can come to think that no solid Christian, no mature Christian could ever get into that kind of a place of despair. After all, All a Christian needs to do is just remember all of God's faithfulness, past faithfulness in our lives in similar circumstances, and that'll make everything better in this storm. But Paul had survived three shipwrecks in his past, and he still lost hope in this one. We can think that all a Christian needs to do in any trial is to just simply claim some promise in the Bible or some promise God has given to us personally, and it will make everything instantly better. But Paul had a promise from God that he would go to Rome and he would stand before Caesar. And yet, in this storm, he lost hope. He lost hope. When we survive these kind of trials as Christians, and we do survive them, it is with the full consciousness that it is not because of how strong we are or how spiritually mature we are or how great our faith is. When we survive these trials, we look back and we know that we got through them for only one reason that God alone brought us through them. We know that if getting through that storm had required me bringing 1% to the table that was required in order to do, uh, to survive that storm, that we would have never made it. We could have never supplied, not 10%, not 5%, not 1%. And we know that we got through that one, not because of our faithfulness, but solely because of the faithfulness of God. And we know that we got through that one, not because of some grip that we had upon God, but solely based upon the strength of His grip upon us. And examples of Eurocladon storms in life can be the inexplicable loss of a child, the loss of a beloved spouse, some deep violation of trust, and some relationship that we made ourselves so vulnerable to another person in, the pain and the betrayal that can occur in a divorce. Or the physical deterioration of our bodies over a long haul, certainly those that find themselves in what is known as a chronic pain situation or some combination of things in life. There are many other examples of it in life. And why does God allow such storms into our lives as His children, even when, like Paul, We are not like Jonah trying to run from God's will. We are not backsteading. We are not apostate. We are not far from his will. Like Paul, we can enter into these kind of storms right in the middle of God's will for our lives. Why would God allow such things while we endeavor so diligently to be in God's will? And I don't know entirely I don't think anyone does. Job didn't, and he wouldn't find out for the entirety of his life. But I do know that we learn priceless things about God and about ourselves during these kind of trials. And I know we learn things about God and about ourselves that we would probably never learn any other way. Deep things, eternal things, priceless things just as God promised we would. Romans chapter 5, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And among the priceless eternal deep things that are built into our lives during storms like this is that they they purify our faith in a way that really nothing else can in life they produce a depth of relationship with god and a commitment to god that might not we might not otherwise know they also produce a christ likeness in the form of compassion and the form of humility, and the form of seeing people differently than we've ever seen them before, understanding people as we've never understood them before, caring about people in a way that we might never otherwise learn to care for people. And if you find yourself in such a storm this morning as a Christian, I want to tell you on behalf of the Lord and the Scriptures, that you will make it, not because of your faith or because of your grip upon Him, but because of His faithfulness and because of His firm grip upon you. And what did Paul need here to reignite hope in his life? What he needed is what God provided exactly to him. And that is that he needed a reminder of God's promise to him. As we see there in verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul. You must also be brought before Caesar. And with it, a reminder that while the storm had outstripped all of Paul's considerable natural and spiritual resources, that storm wasn't even remotely bigger than the God who had made that promise to him. And from heaven's throne, an angel was dispatched, and Paul was informed of what is true for us as well, that the storm would not be the final chapter in Paul's life. It would not have the final say. God would have the final say. And so, it will be with you, though God can appear so absent at times like this and maybe you feel it it's no fun but one day you'll look back and you will see his fingerprints all over your life and all over this season in your life one of the conclusions again that we can often come to during this kind of storm is that we're alone in it, that somehow even God has abandoned us, that He's nowhere to be found, when in truth the exact opposite is true. And I think all of it is perfectly encapsulated in that famous poem, Footprints in the Sand. And I think that every Christian, every human being, ought to at least hear at one time so the Lord can bring it to our remembrance with the Scriptures, concerning these kind of storms in our life. And the writer wrote this. One day I dreamed a dream one night as I was walking along the beach with my Lord and across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. And after the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. And this really troubled me. And so, I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times in my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. And he whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you, and it's true. I'd like to close this morning by leaving you with three promises from God's Word that speak to these kind of seasons within our life. The one is from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. And remember that when Paul writes this promise in the Word of God, he writes it from Rome. It's one of his, pa- his prison epistles. He writes it after this great event of Acts, chapter 27. And with a tremendous confidence, born from great experience with God and the Holy Spirit, he said to the church at Philippi, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. The second verse I want you to write down if you're in such a place is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 where the writer of the book of hebrews says looking unto jesus the author and the finisher of our faith because when we find ourselves in these kind of storms they can be so great they can introduce such doubt within our minds that we can wonder whether our very faith is going to survive the greatness of this storm, the confusion of it, the disorientation of the storm. And yet here, the writer of the book of Hebrews says our faith will not fail. The storm will only be allowed to deepen our faith, though that may take time, because Jesus takes seriously his promise to be the author and the finisher not of what we are physically or emotionally or mentally supremely, but what we are spiritually, he will be the finish of our faith. And then Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. He said, with amazing candor, if we are faithless, and we certainly can be in certain seasons within our life, He said, if we are faithful, he, speaking of God, remains faithful. Why? He cannot deny himself. And you might even think, I can't even believe those promises right now made to me. I know. I know. But God does, and that is all that matters as you will see. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, where do you go for the storms in your life? Where do you go? You're not immune from them. Not storms like this, none of us are. I had a friend in high school, a little melancholy, but he used to say with some frequency about life, he says, life is hard and then you die. And I used to chuckle about it when I was a younger person. And now being a little bit of an older person, the more I see that it's true. Life is very hard, and it can be very hard. And then death is coming as well. And you need a foundation for your life and a foundation for the life to come. And only Jesus Christ is that foundation. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service who would love to pray with you to make Him the foundation of your life for the rest of this life and for all of the life to come. You come forward after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. If you need to pray with anyone, uh, with someone this morning related to anything that we've talked about here today or any other need in your life, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand now together, and we'll close in prayer. Father, how can we in any human language express with mere words the thankfulness that is in our heart because of who and what you are, Lord, all of the time, but what you and you alone can be to us In seasons like this in life, we bless you from 4300 American Avenue this morning for your faithfulness to us and for your firm grip upon our lives, and we do so in Jesus' name, amen.